The world is a new place, and we're all making adjustments. It moves faster and changes direction more frequently than ever before. People feel stuck, unfulfilled, and lost in their lives. I hear this all too often. Where are the answers? Someone please just give me the answers. Well, what if I told you the answers are finally here? My name is Scott McDonald, and I was once just like you. Join me on my process of personal development, pathway of success, and pursuit of happiness. For you see, my job isn't just to ask questions. My job isn't to just listen. My job is to ensure what happened to me does not happen to you. This is the Real Experience Student Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McDonald. Today, I'm joined by Brian Bugsy Creighton, a very good uh, friend of mine of the last 15 years and the father of Cody Creighton, who was on our show earlier today. Bugs, it's good to see you. You're all in good health over at the Creighton household. Yeah, everything's good, Scotty. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, we're, we're getting through this thing uh, as best we can, and uh, hopefully we'll all be better for it in the end. Excellent, sir. Well, I was uh, actually earlier today uh, on uh, doing a show with your good friend, John Anderson, and uh, he walked me through his whole, uh, his lifetime, and as I call it, a job for life in, uh, in the hockey world, and he, uh, he touched on uh, your guys' relationship there, and, uh, you know, just, it was just a tremendous episode of knowledge and stories and all that good stuff, so I want to, I'm really happy that you're here to share yours. Um, let's uh, really, uh, you know, go back um, to your playing days. You're uh, living out in Guelph. Uh, your father gets transferred uh, to Toronto and you come into the big mecca of the hockey world. So what does the, uh, the history of Toronto bring to you for your uh, minor hockey career? Where, where do you get started? Yeah, Scotty, I had started out, I'd played, um, you know, in the OMHA in Guelph. Uh, I'd played all-star. So equivalent of what I was coming to in, into Toronto here was, was the same as playing uh, what was double A um, hockey then and it's now triple A. So um, my dad had had a strong hockey background. He had coached University of Guelph, both, both um, boys and girls. So uh, he, you know, he kind of guided me and, and, and directed me and got me to some tryouts when I came here. And I had to go to two or three tryouts. Um, I went to one particular team, and they, they didn't have any openings. But um, in talking to one of the uh, parents of the players, they said, you know, there's this organization called the Young Nats. It's their first year of operation. And, uh, you know, they're looking for kids, and there's, you know, you might have a better chance or an opportunity. So um, I did go there. I was also to go to the Marlies. Um, and go for a trial with them. But when I went out for the young Nats, they offered me a spot and, uh, and we took the spot there and, um, I played there for, uh, two years and then, um, we switched over to the Marlies and, um, and one of the attractive things about playing for the Marlies or going to the Marlies was that, um, when your draft year came up, um, each organization in the OHA, whether it's Kitchener or Peterborough, Sault Ste. Marie were allowed to protect the best 
eight midgets or minor midgets in the organization. And if you fell into that uh, category, then they would protect you and you would end up playing for the Toronto Marlies in my case, which meant, um, you know, you didn't have to, to leave town at 16. You could still, you could play at home. Uh, you practice at Maple Leaf Gardens. You played at Maple Leaf Gardens. Um, you know, we made like 60 bucks a week. We were able to keep that money as opposed to the guys that maybe got 20 and they had to pay their room and board. So, you know, you were, the Marlies didn't have to really recruit at that point. Um, the, the better players sort of just decided to go there. Even as a little Marley, we would practice there twice a week. Uh, you would get all your sticks and equipment. So it was an elite organization that, um, you know, for the most part attracted the best players um, in the city. And um, I think what eventually happened a year or two after um, my protection year and John's, um, the OHA teams all got together and said, you know what, um, we're going to throw this draft thing open because what happens is the Marlies get the best eight midgets out of two million people or whatever the population is where Kitchener's got a population of a couple of hundred thousand and Ottawa's got a little bigger one in the Sioux. So the, um, the draft, um, the draft, everyone went into the draft at that point, but we were in that protection category and, um, our teams were very strong when we were young. John and I both joined the Marlies as Bantams. Um, we, we won the all Ontario. Um, and then as minor midgets, we went and played and lost in, I think, the semifinals because a lot of the other teams around Ontario were older. And then as uh, our midget or draft year, we all ended up playing Junior B and Markham. That was the process that Marley's, uh, the Marlies did. They always wanted a young development team. So you were like basically uh, a 16-year-old playing against 20-year-olds in a 20-year-old league. Um, but they felt that that was the best way to prepare um, you know, their so-called elite prospects, um, shut Gardner Harris, go way back, uh, Palmetier, Boudreaux, um, those guys, they all came through the Markham Waxers uh, as, as we did. So, um, that was the feeder. And, um, I was, I went out and after my, my 16 year old, I, uh, year in Markham junior B's. I went out and uh, ended up making the Marlies the following year. And that team was the team that ended up winning the Memorial Cup. It was um, loaded with top talent. Um, it had probably, it had eight guys that ended up going and playing in the National League, eight or nine guys. Uh, that team set a record for goals for, I think it was 456. It may have just been broken. We basically would play teams in the gardens and probably beat them by eight or nine goals at junior A, major junior A level, which was phenomenal. Um, five or six players with over 120 points. So um, that took us to the Memorial Cup year. Um, we won the Memorial Cup in Kitchener, um, ended up beating the new Westminster Bruins, you uh, know, sort of a, it was always a one game shot. So. Uh, that's where, where that sort of took us. John had mentioned um, the power of playing at Maple Leaf Gardens and the impact that had on him when he first got onto that ice and especially that game against, uh, against Russia with the midget team when Ballard brought you guys all down, 15,000. Yeah. Was that a surreal experience? Was that like, wow, this is what the pros do? 
Yeah, I mean, um, you know, to play at Maple Leaf Gardens, it, you know, our dressing room was right across from the from the Maple Leafs, so you, you know, you were kind of in that world. Um, Maple Leaf Gardens, it, it was always heavily scouted. The games were always heavily scouted there. Um, the scouts would rather go sit up there and they had a, you know, than rather watch a game in the sewer in Ottawa or Kitchener. I mean. You know, they had our scouts room where they get some sandwiches and blah blah blah. So it was it was it was a big league thing uh, the whole way around. And and the story of, with that game that John's mentioning is that um, the Central Red Army, um, which was the powerhouse, uh, their major team was all you know the big team around the world and was winning all the Olympics. They had a feeder system too. They had a they had a midget team that actually. Um, I know John was mentioning it, but Fetisov was was the captain of this midget team, and uh, they they were came over here on tour, which was unusual because it was you're still in communism at that point. But they came over here and were playing other midget teams, and they were beating these other midget teams by ten goals or nine goals. So Harold Ballard, being Harold Ballard, um, you know he hadn't. He didn't have any warm heart for, for the Russians at that point. And um, so he said, well, I'll tell you what, I have a junior B team, but basically they're all midgets. So I'm going to challenge them to a game. And then he said, not only that, on the Marley major junior A team was a line of John Tonelli, Mark Napier, and John Anderson, which were all first round picks <laughs> in, the, in the National League draft. So they came down and, and played with us and this game, uh, you know, drew heavy attention and uh, we filled the gardens um, because it was, again, it was Canada against Russia uh, at any level is always a, is a big draw. And we ended up beating them 4-1. Um, and so um, that was Ballard's opportunity to showcase, you know, exactly the talent level that, that he had. And he always had a fondness for the Marlies. I mean, he lost money every year on the Marlies, um, the whole organization, you know, because, you know, he would pay for everything. You didn't, you didn't pay for anything. You were given everything, sticks, skates. I mean, we're talking, um, you know, 45 years ago. So that, that was quite a, you know, quite a place to be. You definitely don't see uh, that kind of ownership in junior hockey anymore. That's for sure. No, well, he had to leave. So, I mean, if he was losing 200, he was <laughs> getting on the other end. And I think he made it up. He maybe made some money on the concessions because we used to sell the garden. We used to draw like 12,000 every Sunday afternoon to the gardens. You know, there wasn't as much hockey on, obviously. No hockey on Sunday afternoons. There was your Saturday night league game and probably your Wednesday night league game. Um, so, people were, um, you know, much more interested. And they also knew that they were seeing, um, you know, future future players that were probably going to play in the NHL. I asked John, and I'll ask you the same question. What's it like being in that tradition of the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Toronto Marlboros, the kind of the glitz and the glam that comes with playing with the blue and white? Did you guys feel like uh, there is some stardom among your age, age group there that, that the people looked up to you guys? Well, I think, you know, you're always, always proud to, proud to be a Marley. There was a stigmatism about being a Marley. Um, like I said, they didn't really in the minors system, they didn't recruit as have to recruit as heavily. Basically people um, all were attracted to go to them. So everyone kind of knew that 
uh, you know, if you were playing for the Marlies, uh, for the most part, you were probably one of the better kids, if not the best, you know, the best kids, uh, you know, in the city. And um, again, I go back to the fact that, you know, you got to, you got to practice in the gardens. Even we used to practice. My, my coach was in charge of all the scheduling um, for, cause he actually worked for the Marlies. So we used to practice every Saturday morning at about eight o'clock. And that was the last practice before the NHL guys would come on for their pregame skits. So we would be down there and, uh, you know, we'd get changed. And then all of a sudden you would see the Leafs come on at 10 and you'd see whoever it would be. I can remember the Flyers or whatever, but all the teams coming. So um, there was just, yeah, there was a lot of perks. Um, you know, we used to get into the Marley games for free when we were little Marleys. We used to get into the Leaf games for free. We had a pass. Uh, you know, we could go stand up in the end. Um, you know, some of the guys got to, you know, they'd get to know some of the ushers and usherettes. And if they noticed that seats were empty uh, after about 15 minutes, because some people just, you know, they had the seats and didn't show, they let up, you know, they'd get you the seats and stuff. So uh, lots of little, lots of little perks for sure. Talk to me about the Memorial Cup year from start to finish. W- going into that season, that's a special team. So where does it all start? And I and I and I and I, when I say that, I'm hoping you can give me uh, some uh, background on Chief George Armstrong being at the at the helm of that club, and then working your way to the roster. Yeah, like for me, um, to be honest, yeah, I was one of the last guys to, to make that team. That team, again, was a powerhouse team. Um, the year I was there, um, they only went with five defensemen. Um, and they went with uh, basically three forward lines, and, and that was your team. So you can imagine, uh, you know, it was even cut down a little bit more. Um, so I was in there um, actually just glad to make the team, um, to be part of uh, a team like that. Um, we started off, uh, there was a little bit of a bump in the road, and uh, uh, didn't have a great start three or four games. And it's funny because it, um, at that point, um, Mark Napier had chosen not to play because there was some kind of a card that you had to sign and he wasn't willing to play. And I also, um, at the rookie party, I ended up stepping on a broken beer bottle and cut my foot for about 10 stitches and wasn't able to play either for the first four or five games. So the team wasn't doing great. And, and one of the other guys who I was in competition with um he wasn't doing great and so i when i came back it happened to parallel when mark napier came back and uh the team at that point started to uh to take off and just basically um dominated um every team that uh every team that they played um i remember i read an article and it was a uh it was Bill Long who was coaching London Knights at that time. And I think it was Roger Nielsen who was coaching Peterborough Peets. And they, we had played them both on the weekend in the, in the gardens and beat them both bad, like by 10, by seven or eight goals anyway. And uh, the article was, the comment was made that Bill Long and Roger Nielsen said, if we combined our teams, we probably still wouldn't be able to beat that team. So that was the level of um, uh, of that uh, of that team, and, and you know what? You asked about Chief. So Chief was the perfect coach um, for this team. I mean, you know, I tell the kids even today, like 
the last time that you see the Maple Leafs raise the Stanley Cup, the guy holding the cup was, you know, was my coach. That's George Armstrong, the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, and Chief was the coach, uh, was the captain there for many years. And I think Carol Ballard approached him after his career and said, you know, will you, will you come and, and, and coach? And, and Chief is, um, he wasn't an X and O guy. Um, I don't know how many X and O guys there were back then, but he was a motivator. Um, you know, Chief knew how to motivate. That's why he was such a great leader. Um, you know, I think they'll tell you the story. Even Chief would say, like, the, when the Leafs won the Cup in 1967, um, the guys didn't like punch him a lot. Um, the coaches back then were um, very militant. And, um, but what she said is, you know what, we got together and I'm sure that he led that group that got together and said, you know, we're going to win this thing um, in spite of the fact that we don't like, you know, the way that, that, that we're being treated or, or what's happening. We're, we're going to do it for ourselves. So uh, he, was a, he was a great leader. Um, he, he loved to practice. Our, our, our practices always started every game, every day with pond hockey. <laughs> so we'd have the whites and the blues and chief would always play, put his elbow pads on and his little shin pads, you know, the referee shin pads. And he was the best player and we would play for 30 minutes and then we would go to practice for about 15 or 20 minutes. And um, so, as you know, the way the practices are run now, I know the NHL practices are, are much quicker, but, you know, when you had an hour or an hour and a half, you, you wouldn't have a coach who would be able to get away with, you know, shinning with his team for, for the first 40, 45 minutes. But, but that's what Chief liked to do, and, and, and he knew um, – he knew he had a, he knew he had a team that he needed didn't really get in the way of like he just knew he had to make sure obviously who was on the ice at particular times and, and whatever but even he would would say you know I, I just had to make sure I, I didn't screw it up <laughs> um, I think he won a Memorial Cup two years before that too with another real powerhouse group and um, yeah so he was he was a lot of fun a lot of fun to play for. Um, a lot of great stories. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's he. We had a reunion, a Memorial Cup reunion, I think two years ago, and Chief was there. And, um, he started. He got us around the table. Well, six of us sort of laid behind at the end, and uh, he started telling stories. And basically, his story started out like in the forties and fifties. <laughs> so he 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 worked his way up through the 50s or 40 foot to the 70s, you know, to the 70s or, or 80s. So, uh, yeah, I never, never met a person that didn't like Chief um, and didn't like playing for him. He was a, yeah, he was good. What, what would he do to motivate a player? What, <clears throat> would, would it be just, you know, would, would he say something? Would he, you know, call, call, call you out in a way where you didn't want to disappoint him? What, what was his technique? What was his method? No, he never he never called guys out. And probably being an ex-player, he probably probably didn't like that. He probably seen seen an awful lot of that. Um, you know, he, he he would motivate you with you know with you know with speeches or, or cliches. I use it's funny because I use some of his old cliches like like hockey's not like a tap. You can't turn it on and off whenever you want. You know, you have to, you have to build. It's like a train. You get the train in motion. 
you keep it rolling and uh, and if you get it stopped uh, then it's hard to get the train rolling again so he was kind of a guy um you know that had more cliches um i think than uh than ever he he would never go after a guy i don't i think it hurt him to bench a guy to be honest with you because i think he was just he was such a nice guy and uh you know he he just was enjoying it. He didn't have anything to prove to anybody. I mean, he had such a, you know, an elite um, NHL career that uh, he wasn't there trying to prove to anybody that he was a good hockey man or he was smarter than anybody. And I think that gave him the freedom to be himself. So he could just be whatever. And I think the guys um, were willing to go through the wall for him just because of his demeanor. How would he manage the bench? Like, would he would he roll it and then have his special teams? Did he did he play his top guys? Well, he had he only had three forward lines, and so really, um, he would run he would run the run the lines, uh, you know, run three lines pretty consistently. He had his power play guys, and then they were the power play. I mean, you know, you just you know you weren't going to get ahead of a guy. Bruce Boudreau had 160 points that year, so if he's on the power play and you're not, but John Tonelli had 140, <laughs> you know, Mike Kaziki had about 110. Uh, those are your three centermen. Um, so um, he would do, he would roll that. His, his, his defense, he had one fellow, uh, Mike McEwen, who played on a couple Stanley Cup teams with the, the Islanders. And, and, and I think he, he made one with the Rangers. He was an offensive defenseman. He had like 80 or 90 points. So he would always start in the power play. Um, and basically then the other guys, uh, you know, would get, would get the opportunity to play. Uh, for me, I was kind of like a fifth defenseman. So he rolled his 4D. Um, he only played with 4D a lot in, in that era. Um, but you know what, I, I still got, you know, um, enough ice time. Um, the other thing that Chief would never do and that kind of hurt me and in my second year there was three defensemen that were in their draft year and he would never bench um a guy in his draft year no matter how bad he was playing and he realized because you know scouts were out watching and um a scout might have come to watch this particular guy and if you bench him he he was aware of the fact you know that that might hurt his position in the draft so in that case um you know when guys were kind of having a bad game uh the particular three guys in their last year and i was in my you know i was still in my second year um and the other guy playing ahead was a guy named trevor johansson who was at least 10th pick in the first round so uh, obviously he was very um, he was very capable um you know maybe i didn't get some of the ice um you know that i would have normally wanted to get but when I was in my draft year uh, it, it worked the same for me didn't matter how bad you were going you were gonna you were gonna play and and that's something I think that a lot of coaches today um, fight with they uh, spe- especially in, in minor hockey and in tier two you know the major juniors still you know they have a different structure for sure um, what was it for you that that draft year what was your mindset going in? Was that something that weighed on you throughout the entire season or was it more whatever happens, happens? No, I mean, you're, you're aware of your draft year. I mean, you, you know, you come by it honestly, right? I mean, you're, you're kind of programmed to, to do that. You, you, 
you know, you start, you start your, as a 16 year old, and then you know that, you know, uh, your draft year is, comes up in two years and you're trying to build towards, uh, you know, towards that. And, uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't seem to be uh, any extra pressure per se. I, I will tell you this, that when you, um, when I was a 19 year old, like my, so my draft year, as opposed to my first year, um, I found that uh, you were just a lot bigger, a lot stronger. You were more of a, more of a man than, uh, you know, than the younger guys. So uh, I found that year was, you know, I, I actually had a pretty good year that year. Uh, so I worked out that from that point of view. I think I had like 43 points or something, which, you know, is, is not a bad year for a defenseman at that level. Absolutely. Was, was the team um, going through any kind of transition during your draft year? Like you, you, did, you didn't have the superstar team I knew that from a couple of years earlier. Well, we would have. What, what, what you have to understand is that um, the year we won the Memorial Cup, actually, um, there was a card you had to sign when you turned 18 that meant that you were going to um, play until you were 19 or your draft year. And John Tanelli that year wouldn't sign it because he was going to go to the WHA and play for the Houston Arrows. So what was happening there is the NHL couldn't take guys until they were 19 in their draft year. But the WHA, which had just started out and was grabbing, you know, grabbed Bobby Hall and, and you know, some, it was grabbing some high prestigious players and trying to, to go forward. They, were t- they would take 18-year-old um, guys. And in that particular case, um, there was only two guys that left in the whole of uh, the OE, the whole of Canada of all three junior leagues uh, uh, after we won the Memorial Cup. And, uh, and one was Mark Napier and one was John Tanelli. So what happened was there was probably 150 points each guy who left, who had two more years of junior. So we probably would have won the Memorial Cup three years in a row. Um, but when we lost those two guys, no other team was losing their, their best 18 year olds like Dale McCord, who was the first pick overall, um, in my draft year, he was playing with the Finn cups, Hamilton Finn cups. And they ended up, I think they ended up winning it, winning it or the following year, they ended up. So we got really, we got depleted and, uh, the other teams, they didn't, um, then some other guys went underage or Rob Ramage and, some other teams were getting picked, but only like a couple of guys here and there. Um, so we, we never had the, the same team because we lost those two guys. Had we not lost them, um, we would have been legitimate Memorial Cup contenders. Uh, our team wouldn't, only team, the second year, the only guy we would have lost is Bruce Boudreau. If you, if you don't lose those guys and you guys stay at the top of the mountain, does that raise your stock value that much more for your drafter? Do you feel? Mm, not sure. I think, you know, I mean, potentially, yeah, there might, you know, you're, you're going to get, you're going to get more mismatches because you've got better, your, you know, your team is that much stronger. So, uh, you know, you, you might get viewed as a, as a better player because you're going to be in situations again, if in my draft year, you know that I'm going to play and there's only going to be, there was only another one other guy, Trevor Johansson. There was only two guys in that year on our defense. So, you know, we were going to get uh, 
prime time ice, which we got, you know, anyway, but, um, you know, if you're surrounded by better players, you look better. You don't get, you may not get beat. You may not, you know, you may not get the puck away. They might, they might take it out of your end for you. So you don't give, you know, you don't make a back play. So, I mean, it, it could have enhanced it, but I'm not going to say that that's, that would have been, uh, you know, the way things have worked out for me. Um, I don't think that's true. Well, on the way out of that major junior career, you, you go undrafted, but you do go to the 78 rookie camp for the Detroit Red Wings, if I recall correctly. Um, what was that camp like for you when, when you got there? Well, it was, there was a lot of guys. Detroit was in a rebuild, so they had uh, pretty much like 100 guys at that camp. Um, the guy who it was a guy who coached me in junior B was actually a scout and ended up being a coach for Detroit and in the eye and he was the one that uh, phoned me kind of the day after the draft said don't worry you know uh, Detroit they've seen you you know they kind of like you um, you know come on to camp and this camp and uh, you know see if you can kind of turn it into something and so um, you know I went there and actually had a really good camp I think they only took about five guys to come back to the main camp which was going to be in a few weeks um, and I uh, you know I ended up getting asked to go to that um but you know when there's there's that many guys uh it, it's hard how many guys can they you know how many guys can they watch so you really have to be special um you know to get to get their attention as opposed to when if you're drafted um you've got the guys in the stands who are the scouts who drafted you so obviously they're going to build you up they're not going to say i did a lousy job or i made a lousy pick <laughs> so you know drafting drafting is important just because it it just starts you up the ladder higher so did you feel that your uh your playing style like i know you you were extremely fast faster than fast you skated faster backwards than most of your teammates did forwards um and it, it was a it was an era of big brute defensemen who were who were being like picked up in the league at that time. Do you feel like maybe that the playing style didn't didn't match up at that time? That kind of was a, a factor as well. Yeah, you know, um, I think everybody has a story of why it worked out or why it didn't work out. And um, you know, for me, my my draft year was the year that Philadelphia won the Stanley Cup. And they won that with uh, basically just mugging everyone. Um, they were they were bigger, tougher. They had, you know, Bobby Clark and Billy Barber. They had some skilled guys, but basically they just mauled you. And um, at that point, the mentality, especially for defensemen, was, you know, you you need to be you need to be big and you need to be strong. And um, in that era, you also used to be able to put your stick on a guy and then can control him from that point. So um, smaller guys had a little more, a um, little more problem because uh, these bigger guys, um, you know, they were bigger and stronger. So they were um, a little bit harder um, to control. So, I mean, as a kid, even we were always taught when you go in the corner, get your stick on the guy's hip, get them under control and then you can drive them into the glass and, um, I laugh. I know you talked to John, and, and John mentioned about the game back when he played. And of course, John was 
probably the, one of the, he was the fastest guy in the, in the OHL when I played and that transferred into being one of the fastest guys in the NHL. He goes, but he said, you know, basically all I did is t- tow guys up and down the ice <laughs> because you just put the stick on and then you don't let, you don't let them go. So big and big and strong and slow was um, the kind of the flavor of the day. And, and that was kind of the recipe for, uh, for winning at that time, there there wasn't any probably five foot nine defensemen, um, you know, in the league. It's uh, when they took away after the uh, after the strike, they took away the putting the stick on the hold up, and now that you see the game that you see today, um, that opened it up for obviously for all the small guys who could skate. Um, you now have to be mobile. You have to be agile. I, I was very mobile. I could skate backwards as fast as they forward. So that allowed me to gap up. You know, my gaps could be really tight because I could go fast as fast backwards or if, where if you can't, you got to, you know, your gaps have to be bigger. What's the next step now? The, the, the Detroit camp doesn't work out. Is that where you make the transition to the senior league or is there other things happening prior? No, to I come back camp? from that camp. And then at that point, the, uh, the OHL or OHA, you were allowed one overage. So Frank Bonello, um, who was a GM at that point, we had known in what you know they know me all my life, obviously since my Bantam days, and I just come out on Miley's anyway. And Chief knew me; he was the coach still. So they called up and said, "Look, we you know you want to come back and, and play uh, play uh, your overage year." So um, you know I went back and, and I did that. And in, in that during that period, I contacted the University of Toronto um, because. Uh, what I had hoped to do is, is make the Canadian Olympic team. The Canadian Olympic team that year was going to be composed of basically um, university. You couldn't use professionals back then. So the Canadian the Olympic team is going to be composed of um, you know, university players. And um, so I was hoping to um, turn that in an opportunity there. And the coach of U of T was Tom Watt. He was going to be one of the two coaches. And the other guy was a guy named Claire Drake out of Alberta, kind of two legends in, uh, you know, Canadian college hockey. Um, and I didn't end up getting the opportunity um, after my, my overage year. I started back at, I went to U of T, but I didn't get the opportunity to go to the, the Olympic camp. And uh, so that didn't, uh, that didn't work out. So I, I just opted opted out of there halfway through the year. And that's when I started to play senior. And the senior league, uh, you know, which is actually up until a few years ago, has started to dwindle away now, but it was actually, or that league was rocking when you were in it and it was filled with a lot of good talent. And uh, your nephew Spencer was on uh, last, uh, this past weekend. And he said, sometimes you got to take, you know, um, one step back to go two steps forward. And John had a, a story like that too, where I, when Hartford had let him go, um, he got the offer um, to go play with, uh, with Gabby Boudreau in uh, Fort Wayne. And he said it actually turned out to being one of the best things he ever did was going to the senior league and playing for Cambridge like that for you. Was, was that a good uh, morale booster? And did you have a lot of fun in, in, and getting back into hockey after it didn't work out at the national level? Well, yeah, that was a, you know, that was a good experience. At that point, um, I, I had started to work and actually I, I played one year of senior. Um, and then I was to go to play for Kalamazoo actually in, in the IHL. 
Um, and the coach there was my former coach in, uh, in Markham. And he came and asked me if I wanted to go play there. And I said, look, I'll come and play, but I don't want to come and try out. Uh, I've tried out too many times and I kind of always ran into that roadblock. We like you, but we just don't like your size. And here's the theory, I guess, I, I, maybe to take you back is that they felt that in that day, a big guy, they might be able to teach him to skate, but a little guy, they couldn't make him grow. And so therefore you always kind of ran into that kind of um, mentality. So I was to go to, to Kalamazoo and, um, but what happened was um, a fellow was coaching the American league. And I think it was maybe Ronnie Wilson's dad. There was Johnny Wilson and Larry Wilson. Both guys were involved in Detroit. One of those guys passed away. And my guy ended up being the coach in the American League. And he said, uh, I'm in the American League. I can't take you there, but you go to the I. And I, and I went to the I. And then that coach had his guys. So um, I ended up going down to Johnstown to play for the Johnstown Jets. And my first or second day of training camp was uh, my partner was one of the hand, was uh, Dave Hansen uh, from Slapshot. Um, <laughs> and when I was there again, Detroit had guys coming down under contract. So that, that sort of fell by the wayside. And then that's when I came back um, and went and started to play for Cambridge. Um, I began to work at a company. My wife's uh, father had a manufacturing company. So I started working there. Um, I basically, you know, I really didn't have any, any education because everything was, was stringed, you know, to be a pro hockey player. And um, so I just had to start at the very bottom in that. And the senior hockey gave me still, it kind of bridged that gap, um, you know, from playing hockey a lot and thinking, you know, where you're going to end up to sort of, uh, you know, the old thing is when I was at Maple Leaf Gardens, you turned right and went in the Marley Room. Maybe next year, a couple of years from now, you'd turn left and you'd go in the Maple Leaf Room. That was sort of what you started to, to tell yourself. But once you were out the front door on Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, it, it could be a long way back. That, those senior teams were very good. There were a lot of guys that played college and pro. And the Cambridge team that I was on had a huge following of about 700 people every sun, Saturday night. It was a tradition there. So, yeah, it's a little different now where the guys come and go. Uh, you know, if they practice, they practice. If they don't, they just go out and play. There's some good players in that league. Uh, very good players, obviously, were pros, the NHL, American League, whatever, collegiate. But um, it just, it, it uh, there's a little more dedication to it. But it was a good bridge for me. Um, and I ended up winning an Allen Cup there, and I went to two Allen Cup finals. Um, so uh, those, yeah, those were good years. How long did it take for you to, um, you know, come to peace with the fact that pro hockey was not an option and that senior hockey it was, this is, this life is right for me now. Uh, did it take the first season, a couple of seasons? Well, I think for me, you know, for me, I kind of, I'd figured it out by the time I, I um, you know, my sort of second year in Cambridge, I, like I said, that first year I came out of there and still, you know, was thought I was going to maybe go play, um, you know, go start out in the eye and, and start to make some, make some moves there. But, um, you know, it's funny that they did a big article on me in my overage year and, and the guy asked me, well, what do you think about, you know, gonna, now this year is going to be different. And I kind of said, you know, they've watched me for three years, four years. <laughs> like, 
if they didn't like what they saw in four years, um, I'm not so sure they're gonna, you know, they're gonna all of a sudden get turned on. I'm not gonna, you know, change, be able to change my style or that to that uh, level. So, how many years was it that you're in uh, Cambridge for? Was it six or seven? I believe uh, it was probably, a, I would say, five or six, probably for sure. Yeah, I played till I was probably about twenty-seven. And. During that time at all, did any uh, coaching opportunities come up for you, or is that not really in your mind at that time? Was it just becoming a, a thing for fun, just to just go no, and play? I would. I had no aspirations actually to be a coach, and even though, like I said, my dad had you know had coached at University of Guelph, and um, no, I, I, I was I was a player, just wanted to be a player. I, I wouldn't have at that point. I wouldn't have wanted to give up the time to coach. I had no aspirations to coach anybody at that level. I still really enjoyed playing um, so much that, that that's where my time was. And, you know, I was, a f we would practice twice a week and play twice a week back then. So it was a fairly big commitment as well. What was the deciding factor for you to leave the, uh, the senior league? Oh, I think it's like, it's like everything else. Um, our team at that point, a lot of the guys that had blown apart, there was a core of us that stuck together for a number of years. Um, the core had kind of blown apart. And um, you just, it wasn't as much fun. And um, I, I lived in Toronto or in Caledon when I was playing for Cambridge. So it was a fair drive for me. I would have to drive like an hour each way. And just the monotony of that, um, you know, it just, you gets tired. And so if you're not really having a lot of fun and you're not playing with all your friends and the team wasn't as good as, you know, as previous teams, um, that's, that commitment starts to get old and you know you've been doing it for a long time um so you just you sort of decide that's enough and move on so so where does life go from you from there then now that hockey's out of the picture um you're still in your uh mid late 20s um you know you're you're working for your wife's uh father at the time um does this start to give you a thing of like, okay, I'm going to really strive in my career or is this just, you know, we're, we're taking life day by day. Like what like you have that hockey player mentality where there's always that progression and now it's okay. We're just going into everyday regular life. Um, what, what, what was pushing you to, to really uh, make your life the best version of it that you could be for you? Well, I think, you know, you, as a, as an athlete, uh, ex-athlete, you, you know, you always, always sort of strive to, to be better. And, and um, you know, when I went into the family business, I had, I started at the very bottom, uh, you know, bottom of the pay scale and sort of the bottom of the, of the rung. Um, and I was prepared to do that because um, I understood one thing, like in a family business, um, if you do a good job, then you will probably advance a little bit quicker because you have the ability or whatever you're doing, the owner of it, um, you have the, the ability to go, to go to him. You're in contact with the owner more so than if you're just a person in the back. So um, in a family business, if you do a rotten job, you probably get fired right away. <laughs> but <laughs> if you do a good job, um, it gets seen easier. And so I kind of, I kind of use that as a barometer thinking, well, if I go in here, you know, I do a good job, I'll, I'll be able to move up in the ranks. And, um, you know, and, and that's where, that's the way, where, how it ended up, you know, I was 
sort of making manufacturing parts and then I became in charge of manufacturing parts. And then I became in charge of manufacturing parts and, and doing all the buying you know, within the company. So in that framework, uh, you know, I didn't really have a, a huge, you know, I never really wanted to, I wanted to be a hockey player. I, I didn't want to work. <laughs> so it wasn't like I wanted to, you know, run a company or be a CEO. Um, I, I, that wasn't, that wasn't my, uh, my aspirations. For, for our younger uh, student athlete listeners, they hear, you know, work hard, do a good job, but they, it's such a broad statement. What, what's your definition of doing a good job day in and day out? Well, you, you know, first off, you have, you know, you have to, you have to be there and, and, um, you know, making the commitment to be there, um, always ensuring that, uh, you know, things are, are being done right. Um, and that you're always doing things, um, to the best of your ability. It, it does carry over a little bit. Like the one, the product that I was involved with was a, a specific drill for the railroad. And I wanted to make the best drill. And we used to go into these, uh, to these railroads around North America. And basically what you would do is you'd all line up maybe four or five companies and you'd be given a piece of rail and you'd sit there and you'd drill. And the guy with the most holes, he ended up getting the business um, for that particular year. So it, in an, in an, in a way there was a competition so it was um it was important that the product that i was involved in you know it was always made properly and made to proper specifications and so that it, it had the opportunity to to perform and and basically win and that and that so that did carry over a little bit some of that mentality how, how do you not get bored or um tired of i'm better than this i should look for something else how, how, how do you fight that that well mindset? originally the hockey playing senior hockey was my was my was my outlet um because you're right i had never worked a day in my life till i was 21 all i had done is basically played hockey and and and, and then worked out in the summer which most guys didn't work out in the summer but i used to work out in the summer because because i wasn't as big and i wasn't as heavy and was part of you know my physical um, makeup wasn't as, you know as desirable as some of the other guys so I had to I had to really work at it um, so um, playing senior hockey you know that was sort of the outlet that sort of helped me kind of uh, kind of bridge the gap and working for family can be so difficult I've done it before and it didn't work out how did you make it work? What, what, what do you got to do to make that relationship stay successful on a, on a, on the work side of it, not the family side, but on the work side of it? You have to do a good job and you have to be, um, I was different because I was a son-in-law. I wasn't a son or a daughter. So I think my attitude was different. I didn't, um, feel a sense of entitlement. And I think uh, when people go into family businesses, uh, especially when they're like a son or a daughter, there is that sense of entitlement. Um, and that sense can lead you to behave in the business situation um, 
inappropriately sometimes, whether it's you come in late or you leave early or you don't get your work done or whatever, um, you know, whatever it looks like. And then that puts the owner in an awkward position where uh, he or she has to make a decision um, on whether you can still be part of the business or not. Because if, you know, if everyone, everyone's watching you, there's no question. Everyone watches you when you're part of the family because they basically, um, they will act in, in, in coordination or to, to what you do. So if you're slacking off or, you know, when the bell rings, you're five minutes late getting to your machine or working or whatever that looks like, um, you know, that, that message gets sent to the other employees and, and they, they will copycat. So, um, you know, you have to do a good job. As you're climbing the ladder in the earlier years, when you're lower on the totem pole, do you ever get the thought, I got to pack this in and try something different? <laughs> well, yes and no. Again, because, um, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of options at that point. Um, just going back, <clears throat> um, back in the NHL in those days, all the players or 95 or 98 percent of the players came either from the quebec junior league the ontario junior league um or the western junior league so um they you know the university wasn't an option uh very there was very few university players in the NFL, maybe a, maybe maybe a handful so um obviously i didn't have an education to fall back on uh, so um, my eggs were all in that basket. Uh, I went to U of T, yes, and I think it happens now, but the guys are a little more prepared. But when you've been out of school for three years or two or three years, and basically kind of the dream is, uh, the dream is over, um, it's hard to, to knuckle down and go to university for three or four years and have the discipline to kind of do that. So, um, you know, I, I didn't really have an option. Um, I, I could have gone somewhere and drove a tow motor and made probably three times as much money. But I, again, I, I always knew if I did a good job, um, you know, the possibility for advancement and uh, the ability to, to make more money to, you know, to look after myself and Judy and the kids. Um, that, was, that was always in my mind, you know, in my mind and in my thoughts. And not only is, does Typico give you the opportunity of advancement, but you're also learning a lot of the way, along the way. And it also gives you the opportunity to do, um, you know, Crytek manufacturing too, which you do with the, with the refurbishment for the Apache helicopters. When does that, uh, when does that business entity start um, while you're also working with, with, with <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, with Typico? Well, I would say probably about 15 years ago, um, the, the Crytek manufacturing as it sits today was basically a division within Tipco. And um, at that point, my father-in-law was, um, you know, thinking about selling the business. Um, so he took a couple of smaller divisions and he, he said to me, why don't you, uh, you know, end up owning these, these companies? He said, because if, if I go to sell my business, uh, whatever that looks like, um, chances are whoever buys it will probably not want to keep any family. 
So the thing would be for me at say 55 or whatever that was um, to now have to go out and find a job um, at that age would, would be very difficult, uh, you know, because, you know, you're, you're, you're 55. And so um, and I ended up taking over um, this company and uh, we had some, you know, we had already sort of set clientele and then uh, I just, I continued to do the buying at Tipco up until one point where I no longer was involved with Tipco. And now I have this business here where we do, uh, you know, high precision grinding and, and have a contract to, make, uh, to do uh, the Apache helicopter, which is the, uh, for the U.S. military. Um, it is the main attack helicopter. If you ever Google it, you'll see it protects everybody and does all the fighting. Um, and they're doing... Uh, they're retrofitting these helicopters to be able to carry more and, and, and uh, more weight and faster and everything else. So uh, we, we kind of, we, we do that. So in the course of 30 some odd years, you go from Memorial Cup coaching boys and coaching girls, in your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've said this before. Um, um, girls listen. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, they listen a lot. Um, more than boys um and that that can be um you know maybe a bit of a maturity thing um just because uh you know girls tend to mature a, a, a little bit a little bit sooner than maybe boys do so um like if i was going to be out there um I didn't want them really wasting my time. I mean, it was, you know, it's a reasonable, reasonable commitment. Um, a lot of the time it was with Cody, but, um, I just, I always demanded that the, that the kids, the kids would listen and, and, and they didn't fool around or they would do it. So when I say that the, the boys would listen to, um, I never had a problem really with either group, uh, to be honest with you knowing what you know now, what kind of advice can you give to, you know, student athletes who are looking to, to go for a collegiate career? Some still want to tra chase the brand uh, even when they're at the tail end of their minor career and, and no one's knocking. Um, what were the options that you were looking at for Cody that, uh, that, that would just be an overall great life experience and still give a, a great education? Yeah. So when Cody was, um, you know, Cody ended up having to play his midget year, which, uh, um, which I think he had talked about. And, um, you know, a lot of the kids had gone on to play, uh, you know, play major junior A. Um, it, it was their first year, but he, he was, he needed another year of um, development. And like, uh, and that ended up, we ended up with a team of guys that uh, five guys ended up on that midget team who at the start thought it was kind of a real, uh, it was a real downer to still be playing midget. Five of them ended up with um, either division one or division uh, three scholarships. Um, so he, uh, you know, he, he had to go back and take and, and sort of and, and, and work his way uh, and work his way through that. So um, when I when he was playing junior again, I wasn't sure what level that he would be able to to make. Uh, trying to be a father who was, uh, you know, uh, 
right, being rational um, in his ability and, and where it was going to be. So the first thing I looked at is when I thought if he was going to play tier two, I, would, I looked at how many guys were going to graduate every year. And I kind of just did a rough number of when I look at the teams and I could see that there was, you know, there was going to be like 80 guys graduate every year. So I'm going, okay, where are they going to get the players? Well, the guys coming out of midget, the best ones or the elite ones are all going to major A. So that means there's other guys that are going to have to fill the gap. So I kind of felt, you know, what Cody's probably going to have a good opportunity to go to go play um, to play tier two, and in fact he did, and obviously um, he flourished there. But even when he was there, we started to look at, uh, you know, where where would he end up in college? And again, I didn't have this sort of inflated opinion. Oh, he's Division One and going to Michigan State or Michigan or whatever. Um, I. I, I I started just looking at various universities, whether it was Division One, or whether it was Division Three, um, and there was also club hockey, which is very big in the U.S. Um, and club hockey has like, oh, I think it has like six or seven levels, if you can believe it. So the top club hockey um, level is a pretty good level. Liberty University is in it. Um, Arizona. Arizona University used to be it until uh, Don Levin, the owner of Chicago Wolves, kid went there and all of a sudden they became a Division I school. So um, <laughs> anyway, um, I was looking at that thinking really it was about the experience. I, I wanted him to be able to play some kind of um, sport for his uh, school sport. Um, what it would be. And it, it's funny, I, I've told you this before. I even looked at University of South Carolina, uh, University of Southern California, USC, you know, a renowned football school, obviously. Um, and I looked up and they actually had a hockey team and it was a club team and it probably wasn't a, you know, a top division, but you know what? They wore the USC colors, whether that's it's red and gold or whatever. It's, it's a, some, some type of a formation like that. And I thought, you know, if he can just, if he ends up doing that, um, it'll give him a chance to just meet people right away, you know, have teammates right away. You know, you don't go into, into university. It's a, it's big and it's, it can be scary if you're going in all on your own and, you know, trying to make friends and make your way through when you're on a team, whether it's a club team or, or, you know, a collegiate level team, you, you have an instant sort of, um, network of friends and support and i thought you know that would that was going to be an important thing for him and it if, if it was club hockey if that was his level then, then so be it um, as it turned out for him uh, you know he, he um, you know he excelled and, and got better and better and um, you know, that probably takes me to where i started getting involved with your dad and and, and paul crane um you know, they were always very fair with up with us, and um, you know, I, I appreciated that. A lot of times in hockey, um, you do stuff for people, and they don't really appreciate it. But um, you know, I, I appreciated what they did for me and for Cody, and so therefore, um, I was quite happy and anxious to get back and and maybe do something for um, and be involved with your uh, your your uh, your your dad's uh, granddaughter, which was uh, McKenna, um, when he asked me to come back, I was more than happy to do that because you, those guys have done a lot for Kobe. So I never forgot it. That's amazing how, uh, how everything has that domino effect, you know, going, 
you know, when Cody first got into Brampton, that's when my niece was being born and when she was born in 04. And then who would have known, you know, about 14 years later, you'd be, you know, paying the piper (laughs) 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 to, to, to help out back on that. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, Cody and Spencer and I have talked about the environment that the junior team, the Brampton Capitals that they were a part of, how much of an impact that really helped them in their playing careers because they were given that opportunity. And I keep saying, you know, I think it started at the top with Johnny Onzo, the owner, who just gave the management the ability to do what they, they needed to succeed and the management that was in place, whether it was the old man, Paul Crane, uh, Dana Baker, Maddie Lang, and, you know, Randy Novak was there as well. Um, you know, uh, for, for, for a brief period, but, uh, it, it really, a lot of positives came out of playing tier two. And in today's world, everyone's so concerned about tier one, people would rather play tier one on the last place team and get shellacked Mm -hmm. than to play tier two and be a contributor and build something from that. Um, how important do you think it is to stay in your circle of competence, as Warren Buffett would say. Well, I knew you were going to hit me with this, so I thought about it. <laughs> and um, there's two lines of thoughts, uh, in, in, in my opinion. Um, to be a big fish in a little pond or to be a little fish in a bigger pond. Um, from a development point of view, um, you know, you can go, you can go down and, and play um, where you're one of the star players and there's something to be said about that and there's something to be said about um, the development in that. And then you can also take the other, um, other road where, you know, you're a lesser player, um, but you're playing against um, better players and you're practicing against better players. And um, so I don't know that there's a, a right or wrong answer, but I will, I will tell you what I would have done. <laughs> um, All ears. Cody, um, I think he probably would have played at the higher level and, and, uh, and, and maybe and been, been a lesser player. And, um, but there's a bit of an addendum there, and maybe I can explain it to you this way if, if, uh, if I don't run too long. But Go for it. Um, last year um, on our team, we, we had a girl um, whose dad was the skills coach for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And um, this guy, is, he is like off the charts, in my opinion, when it comes to knowing about hockey. Um, he does a lot of work in the summer with Sidney Crosby and, and McKinnon and they come in for him. So I think his deal was he could still do his NHL players, but he would, um, he would also do the Toronto Maple Leafs. And um, we had a girl that wasn't, wasn't doing well. And he did um, this little ta- uh, video presentation for her. And what he was trying to show her, was um, that she needed to get her position on the boards when the puck was going to come off her, her, her side, how she should do it and what she should do and what she should look for. And in the presentation, he used um, Patrick Kane and Kyle Oposo. And there were three things that he kind of pointed out in, the, in this, in this uh, film for her. 
Um, one was sprinting to your position. So you need to get to your position in a hurry. The second thing was to do a shoulder check to look at where the support was um, and where the pressure was. And he, when he broke it down, um, it was very easy for her to understand. Um, but the thing that brings me to this is what he said at the end is this, he goes, you need to practice this, these skills in practice in the drills that your coach uses and develop these techniques in the drills that your coach uses because your coach isn't going to always use drills like say per se he would use or you don't have a skill coach to to do these drills with so um i thought that that was very important which leads me to why i what i would do with cody with the addendum would be if he was playing at the higher level i would find a good skills coach for him because and whatever his weaknesses were, were, I would use the skills coach to work on those weaknesses because he will never be able to close the gap if he just continues to play on that team and practice on that team uh, and whatever on the more elite players because they're going to get better too because they're doing the same thing. So you need to do something extra. And when you're doing those things extra, as a parent, then I would say, if you want to make sure you're getting your money's worth, watch your child or boy or girl in practices and in games. And if they're starting to do the skills that, the, that you're working on or if they're transferring into the games, it's no point you going to a skill coach and you do a whole bunch of stuff, but then you never take it into the game, which it takes me back to why I told you the story about the girl on our team where he was saying, you need to practice the skills and adapt them into practice whether it would be in her case, a breakout with no pressure. Okay. You could do a breakout at your own end, no pressure. You kind of don't bother doing your shoulder checks. You don't, you know, just go stand on the, on the hash mark and the puck comes, but that's not reality. And that's not the game. And that's not the skill that you've been, been trying to work on supposedly with your skill coach. So, um, and that's, that's what I would, that's how I would probably, um, handle it in my situation. Not, I think both, both have their, And that's something that that reminds me of a saying that I've said in a lot of episodes and I keep going back to it, what Jim Rohn said. Uh, We're all all really good at working at our jobs, but we're not good at working hard on ourselves. We work hard on our jobs, we don't work hard on ourselves, meaning everyone is so focused on, I play the games, I go to all the practices, I do all the clinics, I do all the gym, why am I not getting better? because you're not specifically working on you. And I think that really the, the importance of working on you, it, it's not just like hockey players or any other minor athlete. The, the way they get paid is in shifts in, in playing time. That's how they get paid and that's their financial bank account. And, and you'll get that based on the stuff I had just listed. But if you want to make a fortune and really become a, a top 5%, you need to start working harder on yourself. Uh, do, do you think it's the, the, the athletes the, that you've worked with, like the younger kids, <clears throat> you know, between say, you know, 14, 16, all the way up to say 18 years old, they really want to do that. They just don't know how to do it because no one's teaching them how to work hard on themselves. 
Um, I'm going to say probably yes, because you know what, the people that, um, the people that are involved in hockey, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the coaches are, um, you know, volunteers or their, their backgrounds, uh, their hockey backgrounds vary or their life experiences vary. And, you know, um, a lot of them are doing it sort of, it, it's not their main main job in life so they've got the, they're dealing with you know raising a family they're dealing with work they're dealing with um, parents they're dealing with you know trying to run a hockey team um, so you know for them to sort of be able to drill down to that level um, you know yeah I, I would think that there's uh, you know there's some shortcomings um, in, in those areas for sure should a, should a, a player have a meeting with a coach before you know if if changing programs going to new program new coaches put in place any player interested in that program should there be that meeting of sitting down and asking the coach certain questions or is that is that at a line of a player to do almost like the player interviewing the coach to make sure it's the right fit for them because at the same time that player's skill set may not be right for the coach and they know that leading into that uh, that request for that meeting. Are you talking about young ones or are you talking kids going to college? I'm talking, you know, choosing a junior coach, uh, talking to college, that, that level at the higher level. Um, I'm thinking, I don't know about you asking for an inter you interviewing the coach. <laughs> I wouldn't, I, say, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say interview. I don't think I'd have a lot of patience with that. Um, you know, obviously the coach. I mean, if you're going to a college, the coach is going to really um, talk to you anyway. So, um, you know, you're you're going to get an idea of what he sees in you and what you bring to the program, and then he's going to explain to you, you know, how his you know how his program works. Um, so. Um, like if you're getting recruited, you're going to have an idea where you're going. You're also going to watch that team. Like, you know, if, if he's a, if he's a defensive coach, um, and you're an offensive kind of player, you know, potentially he's going to strangle you. Um, I think that happened with Bernie Angelo's son. Um, you know, he won the best, Ryan, tier, yeah. he won the best player in tier two of that tier two league when it was a really good league. 46 goals his last year. Sorry, he went to uh, what university? Do you remember? Michigan Tech. And that coach, he never even got on. He never could get it. He couldn't get any ice with that coach. And that coach, he, he really, I mean, it was just a mismatch. Um, that coach probably should have never recruited him. And maybe he should have never gone there. I mean, he probably could have gone to a lot of schools. Because, you know, he won a year. Like that, the most valuable player in tier two was always like, Cogliano won it one year and a guy named Skinner on St. Mike's. I mean, these guys could play. So could Bernie's boy. Um, but he got himself into a, a mismatch. So the lesson being there is, you know, it is important to look at look at where you're going um, because the if you get in the wrong program, um, then it could, it, it could um, you know, hurt your development for sure. And I, re I remember that transition for Ryan Angelo, Bernie's son. He had 46 goals his last season, which was phenomenal. I remember, I think uh, Oakville or Milton, whoever he finished off, paid 
a few players and twelve thousand five hundred dollars for him in a trade, which was unheard of. But he was that he was he was a sniper. And when he went to that to that program at Michigan Tech, I remember Bernie telling me that Ryan heard from the coach in the first year, you don't leave the zone until the puck leaves the zone in the defensive zone. And that means that a player is carrying it out. There's no stretch pass. <laughs> and, and, and that will, that will really take you back a few pegs and, and make it difficult on you. And I believe in those four years, I think the highest goal total he got was five. Mm-hmm. So you're talking someone who was almost a 50 goal scorer his last year of junior and was in single digits for the majority of his, uh, his NCAA career. Um, Bugs, I, I want to, um, you know, we're, we're almost running out of time here. Um, and I wanted to, uh, to, to, uh, get down to a couple more questions, um, before we go. Um, what, what, what's the best advice that you could give to an athlete who's, you know, going after their dream? What, what, what do you think is the most important thing or one or two things that they should really be focused on, uh, you know, trying to get to the, their college career? I would say, um, you know, some type of a, a balanced um, program, whether you're on ice, whether you're in skills, whether you're in, you know, in the weight room and, and research and make sure that, you know, you're with someone that really, um, really knows what they're doing. And, um, you know, so that you're going to become sort of a, the best the best that you can be. So, and, and, and the other thing that I would tell them is if you want to excel, um, you need to get your coach's confidence and that will turn into you getting to getting into certain positions or getting to play more or in sort of, um, more responsible positions. If your coach trusts you, that should be one of the main things that you need to, 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 to work on or learn how to do. And I give you the example of that in the NHL, there's a lot of third and fourth line guys um, that there's probably guys in the American league could probably step in and do some of those roles. And the reason they are not there is because when those guys in the NHL, were given their opportunity by their coach, whatever it was, like, you know, get the puck out in the last minute or win a face-off in your own end. Or they were able to execute for whatever that coach's desire was, and that built up trust. And when he has their trust, that's why he won't take other players. And, and you'll find even, like, when coaches sometimes move, you watch that some of those third- and fourth-line guys – they show up on his roster, don't they? Because he says to the GM, I can trust this guy. I can trust him to do this. I can trust him to, to get the puck out. I can trust him in the last minute. And that's what you need. If your coach doesn't trust you, you will not get into the situation that maybe you desire. The attention to detail, it's something that we've heard on the last few episodes, how important the intention of detail is. Bugs, this is going to be the last question, and I ask it to everybody. It's 2020, and 16-year-old Bugsy Creighton 
is sitting across your kitchen table from you, what advice do you give to that guy? So he's, so you're, you're giving him the secret to, to get her going for the rest of his life. Well, you know what? I think that, um, as a hockey player, probably I would say is don't let your whole identity be in, in, in being a hockey player. Let your um, identity be in um, that you're a person. And uh, because when we put all our identity um, in, in being a hockey player, and, and that's, all I, that's all you really do um, from a young age, um, when things don't work out, and, and they will not work out. Like eventually we are all told we are not good enough. Whether we're told at 20 or whether we're at 30, but when guys have to retire or whatever, when their career comes to an end and they're, when your whole identity is in that, um, it sets you up for, um, for a lot of disappointments. So just enjoy the, enjoy the ride. Um, be the best that you can be and uh, know that it will, it will come to an end. It, it, it doesn't matter who you are, Wayne Gretzky or whatever. Eventually, we just figure out we can't play anymore or we're told we can't, one or the other. Like the Rascal Flats said, we're, we're a winner at a losing game. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. You got it. Well, Bugs, it's time for us to go. I really appreciate that you're here. I know we'll have you on for many more uh, discussions and panels that we'll have in the future. So I just want to say thanks for doing this and, uh, and being here in the early life of uh, this podcast. All right, Scotty. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. This is the Real Experience Student Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McDonald, signing out.